Welcome to Cross Streets, a podcast about race, culture, and soul care. I am Chris Burton. And I am Brittany Bongiorno. We are friends living in Brooklyn with a passion for empowering people and a collective mission for racial justice and community healing. On today's episode, you'll hear from our friend Corey, who will share a little bit of his life story. Be sure to stay tuned to the end where Chris and I will have a discussion. My name is Corey Morgan. I was born in the South Bronx, and for the majority of my life, I grew up in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Uh, Growing up for me was uh, very uh, complex um, in that I had, as some would say, like two families, two sets of parents. My biological parents, they're Jamaican, and I lived with them for uh, about five years of my life. Um, And then after that, uh, I lived with uh, a family that adopted me at the age of around five or six years old, the Ortega family. I didn't grow up with my biological father because uh, when I was around one, he was incarcerated. And I spent the time actually living with my biological mother um, during those early stages of my life. You know, I would receive photos of him when I was like young. So I knew what he looked like, but I didn't have uh, that kind of like relationship. Um, Communication wasn't, it didn't happen while he was incarcerated. But see life for me, when I was living with my biological mother, um, I went into the foster care system And um, the first family, I didn't stay long with them because apparently um, those foster parents were abusive towards me, even at that age of six months. And so um, I was taken away from that family and placed with the Ortega family. So I stood with them for about six months until I returned back to my biological mother. She uh, she suffered from substance abuse. you know, just the height of that era in the 80s. I, to this day, I, I don't even really know exactly what she was on. Um, could have been heroin, could have been crack. I'm not sure. Uh, just know that, you know, there are there are times of just of me remembering going into like certain rooms and it being full of smoke or whatnot. And so that as a child, you know, it's kind of like we didn't really know what that was. We just knew that didn't necessarily feel right. Um, but I had an older brother. I stuck to him a lot. And, um, you know, we uh, kids, you know, that were basically unattended, we just did whatever we had to do at that age. Maybe like taking chips from a store was like, without paying, it's kind of just what you did. There wasn't that much money, you know, so we had to kind of make make things work. Cereal and water, sometimes even being left home alone. It's just a really interesting kind of like thing where you just got to like make things work out. So at around five years or six years old, we found ourselves at a situation where um, my biological mother was basically being deported back to Jamaica. And that whole scenario that played out was actually very interesting because my biological mother had an opportunity to take all her children with her to Jamaica. Um, And, you know, uh, what she ended up actually doing was requesting that the judge would allow 
for us to stay here in the United States um, with with the family that had kind of like raised us a little bit. The, for me, it was the Ortega family. So I was fortunate because, um, you know, I had an older brother that went to one location with um, with a family member. I had a younger sister that went with another family. Um, and then I had my youngest sister that she, I was actually fortunate that she came along with me to with the Ortega family. Um, and so the Ortega family took both of us in. And then from that kind of like moment on, I'd say there was just this different trajectory of my life in terms of what I was able to receive and uh, experience. Um, it wasn't, you know, white picket fence kind of stuff because the Ortega family, they, they, they were still living in, you know, within the housing development in New York City, the projects. Um, but they still had more than what my biological parents was able to offer me. So when I was living with the Ortega family, I, I couldn't even walk to school alone. You know, my parents, my, the Ortega family, they literally walked me from my house across the street. Um, gosh, up until the time I graduated, I mean, just looking at the house just to make sure I, I got there safe. There was definitely um, a lot of structure there. I always tell people, you know, when you were in school and then you always had that kid that was like teaching you all the bad stuff, teaching you the bad words and teaching you all this stuff. And then the kid would go home and be like, who are you learning this from? Like, I was like that kid. I was the one teaching like these kids, like all these bad words and what to say, what not to say. And I knew a lot already at that age. I knew a lot about a lot of things. I mean, just talk about before I was six years old, I, I, I was exposed to pornography, asked to watch certain things um on tv and live you know like i i'd seen sex in front of my face you know uh you know and even even times you know there's a part of that history where i was asked to even do certain things at an age that was sexual and it was just kind of like at that age you didn't know what you were doing but you're kind of doing it because people you trust are telling you to do stuff you know when you come to school and then you see a lot more structure what was interesting i i didn't Teachers didn't, I didn't have a behavior issue in school. Um, you know, other than they said I wouldn't get, yeah, I kept getting on my seat, you know, to talk to people, that's why I'm so social. Um, but there was a lot more structure. You know, living in the Bronx with my biological parents, I can literally like open up the door and walk around, do whatever I wanted at four years old, five years old, came to Ortega family. There was structure, it was like you turn off the TV at a certain time, you're going to sleep at a certain time. And so I, I started to grow up with the, with the structure um, that I think ended up creating a healthy uh, perspective for my life. Living in, you know, in the housing development, living in the projects, living in the hood, you know, so many ways to call it. Like, like you're, the people on the block, your friends, that's like everything to you. You know what I'm saying? There, that's family. You know, I used to play basketball right across the street from my house and everyone knew each other. You know, even if you didn't know someone by name, you knew where they lived, you know, you knew what block they were from. Um, a lot of friendships grew from there, grew off the court. I actually had a friend, we were in the same class um, in first grade and we kind of just developed a friendship on and on and he lived right across the street from me. Um, he was actually the person that kind of really affected my life because in around sixth grade, I really clinged to him and 
it just so happened that he was like one of the good kids, you know, I don't, you know, on, on, a, on a really specific path. Um, you know, he had maybe a few years prior had just started going to church. And so me becoming friends with him ultimately led me to go to church at that at, at the age of 12. Um, and again, at that age, I mean, there, there were so many different paths, you know, that you can go. And it's really easy to like end up in a gang and not. And I mean, I was a uh, 12, 13, 14. And, you know, you, I remember having an experience where I, I almost got jumped. And just because like people knew me from the block, you know, it was like, hey, yo, we got your back. Like, you just hang with us. We, we take care of everything. And just like that, you could be in a gang. Next thing you know, you're like, just, be, just because you almost got jumped, someone's saying they got you. You're like, yo, man, I'm scared. Uh, you got me? Cool. Next, that's it. And I, I, had, I, I was approached by m multiple gang members just like, hey, yo, I, I got you. When I think about how easy it is to get involved in a, a gang or a clique, or as, a, as they would call it, and how that relates to this concept of like, this gang is my family. Um, it's very real because to know that you belong to something where you value to those people probably more than their own safety or their own health is huge. Even though I didn't join any of the these violent gangs, I had a close clique of friends that we we called ourselves a name, we had a handshake and every, we were like a nonviolent gang. Everybody had a handshake, you know, had a little call that they did to each other. Um, maybe they were rocking the same colors, you know, something to feel like they were a part of something bigger than just normal every day. It matters so much to be able to know that, like, if you are in need, you have people that like you can just call and they'll be running for you. That was a big thing. That was a big thing. Um, and so for some of the people that I knew that ended up in some of these violent gangs or they were creating their own gangs, I, I believe, I truly believe stem from the reality that in, in, in the projects there, a lot of us didn't have tight knit families. We didn't have this idea, this concept of a family, you know, it was, gosh, me and my, one of my best friends, we talk about this all the time. We talk about the fact that so many of our friends growing up didn't have a father in their life. Like, the overwhelming majority of us didn't have that father figure in our life. The mothers in our house, they were like everything. They were like the provider, both financially, mentally, emotionally, you know, all these things. So you grow up in this environment where you don't see, you don't have a tight knit family. You don't have family reunions, you know what I'm saying? You don't have any of these things really. So you're just grasping for that. You're built, you're creating it yourself. I will say that I, I also feel real fortunate because the Ortega family, they went out of their way to give me things that I don't think that I would have ever received, you know? So my mother, you know, Miss Ortega, she instilled in me this concept of, of giving. So some of the, these, these ideals that I have in my head are there because I've experienced it from my mother. The reality of my father being incarcerated um, and not being a part of my life for a long time, coupled with the reality that Miss Ortega was like father figure and mother figure in my life, 
I'd say it was positive, but there was still a lack. I had someone taking a leadership role in my life, you know, um, teaching me to do certain things. I, I probably grew up being very, very, almost like very aware of women and, and, and the needs of women because of that as well. So I think for that, that reality, having a man in my life to say, hey, like, men don't do that. Like, that's disrespectful. Or someone that I can even talk to about relationships and then hear that it would have been beneficial for me. So, so not growing up with a father figure and not being able to talk about some of these things was very challenging. I think it had a, a very unhealthy effect on me. But later in life, I had a lot of men kind of in, in this area of church just kind of see me and say, you need some guidance. And it's the stuff like, it's these weird things that don't seem so impactful, but when you have like a man telling you that, it's it just it has an effect on you, you know. That's that's really kind of profound. The problem I just see that there's a lot of guys that the guys are absent. It's very I just don't I don't see that many men that are that are really taking that father role, that husband role, and seeing that okay, that's on their checklist of things to be successful at. I gotta be a successful husband. I gotta be a successful father. Like when my father got out of prison, him and I connected and considering everything that we experienced, we have a really good, growing, healthy relationship. When I look at my life and I see what my life could have been, and then I see what it, what it, you know, what it is right now, part of just looking at my life is what gives me a little bit of hope. Cause I'm like, man, like I, I truly believe that God was present throughout this whole experience. And, and, I, and I just think that like it's possible for anyone to come out of a, an ugly situation. Just to know that my biological mother is now clean. She's living in Jamaica. To know that my father is out of jail and he's living his life and doing things right and working. To see that I didn't continue in a path of substance abuse or drug trafficking or anything like that. You know, I'm like, okay, it's possible, you know, the cycle doesn't have to continue. And then also to see what it, what, what God put around me. You know, when putting people around me, the Ortega family, though they didn't have much, they were still able to do enough to help help me grow. The fact that my my best friend now, um, he was he was my example, my peer example of, of some something positive or someone positive. And also the reality that I had a church that also took me in and, and became family. This, there's so much to my own story that I think teaches me to kind of encourage other people to be what, what those people were to me. It's incredibly important for me to communicate to younger folk that the circumstances that they're in is not or should not be seen as something that's going to dictate their future, you know, solely because of their experiences. Because I think if you just continue, like you're going to get you're going to move forward. It's kind of like just do not give up. And that, that, that can sound very cliche, but young men, young women need to hear or see these stories of people that were in their shoes and how they persevered forward.
because perseverance is everything. Like I, I truly believe that it, it is everything. And our society, I think, doesn't, we don't take the ownership of kids in our community. There's this really weird, popular thought that I just got to take care of my, my, my family. Just got to take care of my own. Honestly, this idea of, you know, if everyone would like truly like look at their privileges and leverage it in order to uplift those that are disadvantaged, gosh, you'd have a whole, a whole different situation here on earth. There are some privileges that come to people because they work hard for it. You know, they work hard for certain career paths and they they have a certain wealth. Um, and then there are certain privileges that come to you just because of your skin color. And, and I think that both individuals can, you, can recognize their privileges, leverage it so that those around them that are disadvantaged can have an opportunity that they otherwise wouldn't have. That's kind of like what my story looks like, you know. And so that reality, you know, is what gives me hope. And the reality that through my journey... I was able to gain peace and purpose in my life by understanding that like God wanted me to be a part of what he's doing here on earth. And I think the idea of persevering helped, but there's also this other idea of like taking risk and not being afraid of the unknown. Even now, you know, people telling me I wouldn't have even been on this path to being a pastor if somebody didn't come to me and say, you're not too old. There's this concept of like, man, it's too late now. Now I got to just let time pass. And so, yeah, you know, persevere and it's not too late. You're not too broke. It's not too bad for you to kind of like excel out of where you're at. But there, I, I can't ignore the reality that I think the lack of stuff in my life, the lack of family, lack of father, son, makes me unconsciously, innately desire it a lot. I really want the idea of family to be something that's real in my household. Um, communication between me and my children when we have them. Um, I want my children to see affection between me and Kayla. I want my children to see us disagree and how we approach disagreeing. I don't want it to be this thing that they think we never disagree. <laughs> I want them to see us disagree and I want to see us how we handle it and approach it. And I do believe that my childhood and my life experience helps to fuel my desire for a really healthy family. Not perfect, but healthy. And I think like healthy means that when there's issues, we know how to, we have a, a healthy way to communicate and to discuss and to move forward. I don't believe that I have survivor's guilt for getting out of the hood. Because I honestly, I think that it takes, it takes stories like mine to be able to speak back into people that are there now. And it's really getting out of the mindset more than the physical first, like really getting out that mindset, as a, that project mentality, as we would call it, you know, it's just taking advantage of the system um, as much as you can for your benefit. That's that kind of mentality that will keep a generation at the same place. I'm like really proud of what my life is looking like. And I think it's at this, it's this stage where I can really be a benefit to those that are in those circumstances. All right, here we go. Yep. 
We're so happy to be here with you once again. Welcome back to another episode of Cross Streets. This is really happening. This is this is very exciting. Yeah, we're doing it. Yeah, and uh, thank you so much for listening to that uh, opening episode and also the um, first interview that we had with Ron. And we just had a chance to listen to Corey share his story. And obviously, it's not the first time that we've heard it, but it's impactful every single time. Like, what really jumps mm-hmm. out to you, Britt? Like, what made you just be like, wow? Good question. Well, we are very lucky to be pretty decently close friends with Corey. For sure. Um, So, yes, we've heard his story a few times, and I'm so grateful that you guys get to hear it, too. But I think Corey is just, I mean, similarly to Ron, but Corey is just a man whose story and whose heart just embodies hope. And he just breeds this like culture of hopefulness and resilience and is the kind of person that I think with everything that he went through as a young man um, growing up in in the circumstances that he went through I think it's just so incredible how he has used those experiences truly for good right and he even says in the episode how he he wants to help young people who are in circumstances he was in learn how to not let their current life experience as challenging as it may be dictate their future that it doesn't have to necessarily be that way Mm -hmm. um forever and he is a living testament of of a changed life Uh, not only just like a testament but i think the the, one of the lessons from that that i gain is that you really can't give up on anyone you Mm -hmm. know because i laugh when Corey talks about being a little kid in the classroom because mm-hmm. um, oddly enough I remember um, my kindergarten classroom and while I wasn't the kid that was sharing everything I remember just the uproar that my classmate who knew like bad words already and like somehow we knew they were bad too the uproar that he could cause with that and I'm sure there were times when the teacher might have been like oh that boy's a headache or something like that but we can't ever give up on people mm-hmm. you know and I think there's something not just for um, how we deal with children, but how we deal with people. You know, that there's always hope. As long as a person's on this side of living, there's always hope for them. So we can't give up on them. You know? I I think we've talked about this too, but the, the level of maturity that Corey, like, kind of inherently had through... Um, through the hardships that he was experiencing. Like, sure. It's kind of... I mean, it was it's remarkable. Yeah. And I think being so aware of those circumstances aware enough to make a decision to to want to change and to actively like work at changing right himself and like building his character and like spending time with people who would help him become you know just a a resilient man i think is also really beautiful mm-hmm. and something to be said about just folks who understand the importance of strength and mm-hmm. understand the importance of resources. Yeah. Um, sometimes I, I worry for young people or, or any people of any age, really, who don't even know what they don't know, but think they have it all figured out and aren't willing to reach out for help from anyone. But there's something um, to be said about people who have this self-awareness and say, like, oh, I need assistance. I need to fill these gaps. Mm-hmm. And they're often the ones that are better off for it. Just having that vulnerability is what makes you a stronger person, truly. Yeah, I mean, he, there's obviously like a an overexposure of adult 
stuff yeah. at, at an age that is just not not ready appropriate, for appropriate yeah, not, not ready for it yeah. and i mean he talks about like the theft of innocence and like the theft of of youth essentially mm-hmm. um yeah uh, what do you think about that so i'm gonna answer it first through the lens of a father mm-hmm. and then through the lens of like once being one of the youth mm-hmm. and uh i know for for me as 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 a as a parent I look at it as part of my job is to shield my kids Mm -hmm. as much as possible. The world has a lot of horrors that you can't shield them from everything. But as much as you can, shield your kids. They don't need to know yet. They really don't. Um, Because the the concrete is so soft. You know, they're such malleable beings that you want to keep out as much trauma as possible. Um, But then another part of you says that your responsibility is to prepare them. So I don't want, you know, if one of my kids comes home from a uh, school and is complaining about the school bully, I don't think my job initially is to say like, oh, I'm going to just pull them out of the school. I'm going to find a school that has no bullies whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But moreover, how do I prepare them to interact with people that they don't like? Because maybe it won't be the bully. Maybe I did such a great job shielding them, but then they go to college and there's a bully there or they go and get a job and their supervisor's a bully. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen if they haven't had years and years of practice with this mm-hmm. they're going to fall apart and so that frightens me even more than or, or if not more than as equally as the potential trauma of not shielding them but then i also think about it in terms of not just being a father but have been a young person once obviously we all were but looking back now and being an adult and seeing young people and thinking about whoa my 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 community my tribe did such a great job of keeping me from how real things could have gotten. And I feel for my um, kids, mentees, students who I interact with who do have that theft of innocence. Because once it's gone, it's gone. You can't go back. And I think sometimes it's almost like a, I'm going to use a, a, a term from the Caribbean. It's like being force ripe. You know, you're, you're, you're asking people to be responsible for something they can't handle. It can be in the smallest things. Like I, I might have mentioned this before, but I get so mad when I see, you know, adults with like little kids. I'm talking like toddlers who are walking down the street, and sometimes they're walking several feet ahead of the kid, and they're like yelling and cursing at them, like "Hurry up, hurry up, be so slow," or they're dragging them down the street, or they're just getting so frustrated with them, and it's as if the kid, the kid is being blamed for their own existence and for their own shortcomings. And I think our job. As adults, and this is bigger than just being a parent, although being a parent is even more crucial that you get this, but our job is to nurture and to protect. And when you don't do that, I do think it's just something just brutal about that. And and having kids exposed to things that they're just not ready to deal with, can't comprehend, like literally their brains can't deal with it. They don't have the emotional maturity to, to deal with it. And then you start having like, it's almost like having a building that has the ninth floor is built, but the fifth floor is kind of shaky. It's not a, it's not a strong building, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I admit that I'm not quite sure how to like phrase this question, but so something that I would love to talk about is, so Corey was in the foster care system and right. then he was adopted by the Ortega family Yes, yes. Um, because his father was incarcerated right? and um, his mom, his wasn't around either right um actually got deported right yes um so i mean so many 
children of color grow up without father figures Mm -hmm. specifically like a lot of young men in the neighborhood that we live in that Mm -hmm. i've met um have parents who fathers and mothers who um have been or are currently in the prison system Sure, sure um and i just like i know that that's not i mean it's not entirely a race issue. No, no. But I just want to talk a little bit about that in as like a as an issue in our country, um, and and also just the 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 idea of growing up without a father figure for you mm-hmm. as a as a man, but also as a black man. Right. How how that impacted your life, and maybe even talking to like a bit of Corey's experience as well. Sure, sure. So I'm gonna try to start from as macro a place I can start mm-hmm. and then get bring it back down to the personal. So like the ending point will be bringing it back to Corey's experience. A, a level be, above that would be my own experience. So first, um, I love what you say about um, that it doesn't only have to do with race because race is definitely a, a part of it. But we see um, fatherless households or like people growing up without two parents is something that cuts across demographic Rich, poor, black, right. white, rural, urban. Right. Um, that's something that happens all over the place. And even we know, unfortunately and tragically, that you can even experience neglect from your parents when you have both in the home. Mm-hmm. Right? We, we see that mm-hmm. um, often. I, I will say, though, that although there are high numbers of um, fatherless households in like poor communities especially, and, and when I say poor, that means across race, across um, ethnicity, across rural or, or urban, that I think it's something that you do in, in terms of um, bringing it back down to the person. You do have to consider the role of, of slavery and like the closeness of slavery to this problem. Mm-hmm. And that a part of the strategy of slavery, because slavery really was a strategy in a sense, like it wasn't just an economic thing where like, oh, we just need laborers. Mm -hmm. You had to justify the labor. So you had to have an understanding of how religion was going to play a role in that. You had to justify dehumanizing a whole group of people. Mm -hmm. And part of that was destroying the black family and, and, and having like an intentional sense of we cannot allow a healthy black family to exist on this plantation. If we do that, we're endangering our own mm-hmm. purposes. And so it wasn't uncommon, was not uncommon for a man who was um, in love with, a, with a, uh, a, female, a female that was enslaved, enslaved woman, for that man to be shipped to another plantation. It was not uncommon for families to be broken up, to send children to other plantations that we have to understand that under the system, uh, you know, truly this Holocaust of slavery, that black people, Africans were considered property. It's no different than walking through uh, um, any neighborhood in Brooklyn and seeing furniture outside or going on eBay and people are trading things. It was, that's how the lens was applied to black bodies and black people Mm -hmm. and consequently black families. Mm -hmm. So this understanding of keeping the family together did not matter to um, the people who had power, the enslavers and and folks who helped keep up the system of slavery. Because as far as they were concerned, black families are only good for breeding, for making more property, Mm -hmm. that you only wanted 
a man and a woman to come together. And even with that, had nothing to do with modern understandings of why people come together. It wasn't about like, oh, we're going to marry the right person so I can move up um, socially or I'm going to marry the right person because I love this person. It was about putting together these two forms of property in order to create the best form of property you could make. Mm. That's all it was about. And when you have that system in place, it's impossible to have a healthy understanding of masculinity, mm-hmm. a healthy understanding of femininity within the midst of that. Like the resilience that black people have, that Africans have in this world is a miracle to me. It's mm-hmm. truly a miracle because it's something that has existed in spite of so much energy and effort to destroy it, not even neglect it, but to kill it off. And that same understanding, I think a lot of societal issues that we have um, in terms of people can just look and be like, why are black people so bad at um, owning property? Like in in terms of like um, African-American wealth or something like that. But if we're looking at it through the lens of the nearness of slavery and how a lot of the policies from slavery and the plantation are still being implemented today. That it might not be as explicit, but that same understanding, that same um, implicit bias, that same uh, sort of like, not sort of, but that same intention to to subjugate is still there. It just is taking different forms. It doesn't come as a huge surprise. Like, look at any housing policy. Why do, why is it not a common thing? Like you look at Good Times, which was a television show that's popular, you would see like the Evans family together. Mm-hmm. But when you go to most public housing, you don't see the mother and father together with the children. We used to see often, and, and it's something that is resurging in certain pockets, but in like truthfully more middle class and upper class um, black families, where you see like the multi generational living. That a lot of the homes, a lot of the brownstones that people occupy now in neighborhoods in Brooklyn were built with the intention of being multi-generational. They weren't built so just, you know, to be carved up, you know, I get a room here, you get a room there. It was like, oh, we're going to live here. The kids can come back from school and, and live here. Grandma, grandpa, whoever, mm-hmm. as they get older, they can live there. You would have three generations together in the home. Why is that less prevalent? Is it solely because of um, the more Americanization of African Americans, possibly, but I think it'd be foolish to not consider that legacy of slavery still permeating our understanding mm-hmm. of how black families work. Mm-hmm. So to sort of land the plane with that, I remember the first time I realized that I was different. You know, my father didn't raise me. You know, my father and I we're like building a relationship now. I'm, uh, at the time of this recording, thirty-one years old. We're building our relationship, and. I remember feeling weird about it for the first time when I was on like the children's choir uh, at my church. And I, I don't know if it was Father's Day or what the occasion was, but I remember someone on the choir being like, where's your dad, Christopher? And I was like, Jamaica. But I couldn't get more specific than that. Mm-hmm. I didn't know his address. Right. I didn't know how to get in contact with him. I just knew he was in Jamaica. You know, my mind growing up as... um a first-generation American, Jamaica felt very close to me. Mm-hmm. It felt like I was saying, you know, we're here in, in Brooklyn. It felt like I was saying Queens or Staten Island or something. It didn't feel like I was talking about a whole another country. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that um, part of that really helped me feel like, oh, I'm okay. 
And I think that's something that you have to do regardless of what the void is, that you form these coping mechanisms that make you feel less different, that make you feel like, oh, no, this is fine. This is normal. A lot of people don't have a dad, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you sort of rationalize it in, in your mind. But it really got even, like, more intense for me um, once I went to private school. That's when I found myself really shielding it. It wasn't as much of, like, a source of shame for me until I, I would say seventh, eighth grade when I would talk with peers and they'd be like, oh, what does your dad do? And I would say, like, oh, he's he's in agriculture. Or he's, uh, you know, he, he lives in Jamaica and he's and my parents are separated. Mm-hmm. You know, and, I, and I, it was funny to me that I understood that there was more social cachet in saying that my parents were separated than to say, like, oh, my parents are never married. Like, mm-hmm. I understood at that young age that, like, it's a better look for me to talk about it in this way. Mm-hmm. And um, it wasn't such, like, a source of, like, oh. But I, I will note that in my life, to this day, there has been a deeper sense of completion when I've had both parents in my life at the same time. Whether um, it was like, you know, my, my father's married now um, to a wonderful woman um, and, and they've had, you know, uh, two kids, my, my brother and sister down there um, in Jamaica. And even still, I feel like this completion when my mom and dad are in the same space with me. Hmm. You know, just like, ah, oh, this it's sort of like I got a glimpse. Like, I'll never forget this story. Like, I'll never forget, I think it was after I graduated from high school, my dad came up to Brooklyn for my high school graduation. And I remember taking the New Jersey Transit from uh, East Orange into Penn Station. I was going to go link up with some friends. And my mom and dad, like, we're going to go to, like, to dinner or just, like, talk or meet people. I don't remember what they were doing. But I remember just, like, riding the train with them. And this is over 15 years ago. And I still remember um, just us all talking and having, like, a friendly conversation. Them peeling off into Manhattan. I going onto the A train and just, like, standing on that A train platform going towards Brooklyn feeling so complete. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't feel this void. <laughs> That I didn't even, it's almost like if you learned how to walk with a bad knee and you're like, whoa, this is what my knee's supposed to feel like? Like it was, it was the same sort of wholeness that was so unfamiliar, but so good. Like I just wanted to hold on to it. Mm-hmm. And so I use all of that to say that I can imagine, um, not just from Corey's story, but from speaking with a lot of brothers who, um, Cause I think it affects men and women differently, mm-hmm. and obviously that's painting with broad strokes. But I'm just gonna leave it at that. I think it affects men and women differently, and I, I've spoken to a lot of men who, um, across races, across different um, identifiers. But the common thread being, we have to find a way to fill that void. Mm-hmm. That you sort of collect father figures along the way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even have to be people you know. At one point, I think David Robinson. Legendary mm-hmm. basketball player. Mm-hmm. He was filling that void. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Emmett Smith <laughs> was filling that void. Whoever um you can sort of grab onto right. to just give you little pieces of game. And and it really um it, it's it's the coping. Yeah. It's what all people, regardless of what the trauma is, have to do in order to keep breathing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Thank you for sharing all of that. Oh, no doubt, man. No doubt. It, it reminds me of a large part of Corey's story, too, which is just talks about this this theme of belonging. Yeah. And part of what he shared as well was just the, the reality of um, being a part of a gang as a as family and yeah. how easy it is to to be part of a gang when you are just trying to fill that void like you said mm -hmm. um or or i can imagine right right um but i i would love to hear any other thoughts you have on that specifically because i i feel like most of the time we associate gang activity with just like violent people yeah right right and i would love to like unpack that yeah no i, I was laughing to myself because as Corey was describing it it was like you know we weren't like a violent gang, you know, we just all wore the same colors and had handshake. Oh, it sounds like a gang to me, man. Right. Like, um, but yeah, I think even with uh like my, my experience as a teacher, I've had the pleasure to teach kids from a variety of walks of life and, and part of that story is teaching kids who um were for real involved in street gangs. I've taught a lot of kids who've pretended to be in street gangs, but mm -hmm. I've you know, because the reality is a lot of kids who are about that life aren't coming to school regularly. Um mm -hmm. but there's a lot of kids, man, who it's that coping, man. Like there's no other way to, to put it. It's that sense of this gang provides me a sense of belonging that I don't have anywhere else. Mm -hmm. I can't speak for why I still see men and women in their thirties who are in gangs. I don't know. And I'm not gonna I'm not here to ridicule it or, or, or judge it, but it makes a little bit more sense to me when I see like the twelve year old. And Although it's troubling to me because I, I know that most um, gangs, like, they, they couch it in the sense of, like, we got you. But in order to be down with them, you have to pay a price. Mm -hmm. And you can't change your mind on it. You know, like, I'm in a fraternity, um, Alpha Phi Alpha, and I'm very proud of my membership um, in Alpha Phi Alpha. But I also recognize that there are some people who might say after some period of time, like, I'm good. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, saddening to me. But I'm not gonna hurt, do them bodily harm. Right. I don't know if you have the same opt out <laughs> yeah. with most street gangs. You know, I think it's pretty much for life, and they mean that. Like, like you're, you're down forever, and uh, it, it's something that I think speaks back to the need. Like, I'll, I'll view it through this lens. Like, I think it speaks to the need of community members providing lighthouses for it. We used to have a stronger culture of churches providing after-school programs. We used to have a stronger sense of programming at the YMCA, at the Boys and Girls Club, at these different things. But we also have to recognize the unfair distribution of resources, right? Like, if we, frankly, if you had the Boy Scouts being an integrated organization in, in Los Angeles during, like, the 50s and 60s and 70s, you wouldn't have the Bloods. You wouldn't have the Crips. Mm -hmm. But those organizations filled a gap for people. If you didn't have um, people feeling like they had to protect themselves from, you know, their white neighbors or from the police or from, you know, whatever the other was that was making them feel frightened, the temptation to join these organizations wouldn't be as strong as they were. But here we are. So I say all that to say that it's easy for us to see a kid wearing a bandana or they probably might be wearing something... Um, of gang affiliation that you being an outsider to that world, being neutral, wouldn't even recognize that that's what they're representing. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think that we all are part of a society 
that is complicit with the problem. It's easy for us to be like, oh, these kids are doing bad. Mm-hmm. But we're not thinking about like, man, I never go to a community board meeting and see like how our money could be better sent to make sure that kids have something to do at four o'clock. Right. Because it used to be, I'm not sure, and it, it might vary now, but I remember at least from the 90s when it was a much higher um, rate of crime in New York City that between 3 to 5 p.m. was the most violent time of the day. Wow. The most violent time of the day, mm-hmm. like in the 97 era. Mm-hmm. I remember a teacher saying that to me. And y'all can feel free to fact check it if that's not true, but I'm pretty sure it was true. I trust that teacher. Just- but, uh, <laughs> but nevertheless, man, it's something to be said. Why are people doing crime then? Mm-hmm. You don't have to be a grand statistician to see it. They're bored. Mm-hmm. Three to five o'clock, they're out of school. Right. If we were filling the void, putting them in chess club, putting them on a swim team, put them on a step team, whatever it's going to be, it would be less enticing. If they felt a stronger love than the love that these gangs are offering them, they wouldn't need all that. Right. But here we are. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And it just kind of it reminds me of just like the you know the ways that we perceive a lot of a lot of youth like who are getting in trouble and yeah. we're so quick to judge them for the way that they're acting when you know Corey talked about like stealing from the corner store yeah. or the deli like just stealing chips it's like we're not thinking about how he's coming from an emotional and a physical yeah. like experience in his life where this is out of desperation completely and i i think about it it's funny you brought up the stealing chips notion again because you have i've i've taught in private school, I've taught in public school. I've gone to school in private school. I've gone to school in public school. So I, I feel qualified to talk about this, how I've seen people in both situations, rich and poor, stealing things like food, either for the thrill of it or for the need of it. Mm-hmm. You know, like they are hungry or they just want to do something bad and feel the rush of like, I, I, I did that. Or they're just trying to feel as brokenness. To feel brokenness, at 11 years old is something that I, I just wish kids should never experience. To feel mm-hmm. brokenness at nine years old, to not feel, you know, regardless of, of, of everything else, to not feel loved. That's something no kid, like, I wish we could, like, universalize love for all children. That sounds silly to some people maybe, but, like, no child should feel unloved. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. For real. Mm-hmm. And you'll see that across rich, poor, black, white, rural, urban there's too many children who don't feel loved, and that's wrong, man. Yeah. Yes, we can all play a role in that, in yeah. loving kids better. Well, this is something that I think we'll continue to touch on over the over the the course of this podcast. Um, mm-hmm. But Corey briefly talks and touches on the idea of leveraging your privilege yeah, yeah, um, yeah. in order to empower and support those who are less who are just disadvantaged around you mm-hmm. um and i think as a takeaway uh i know that's kind of like a general um statement that is so loaded and there's so many things we could say about that right, especially right. when it comes to race yes. um and how the white community can contribute to that and consider that but mm-hmm. what what do you think about that? What's something I can learn today about that? Well, yeah, the whole notion of like leveraging your privilege, it's tricky though, mm-hmm. because sometimes I hear that with a tone of despair. Mm-hmm. And I, I've even found myself feeling this way like white people are so conditioned to ignore the voices of others mm-hmm. when it's not entertaining them. 
right? Like, so if it's not funny or amazing or whatever, then they're not really going to listen to them. If they're not terrified by, even even in terror, I don't think you're listening because you're just like so afraid. But there's this like conditioning, this societal conditioning to just ignore the voices of the others. Um, So I fear that leveraging your privilege could land on some ears. um, And I'm thinking about those who have the most privilege in our society being like white men, white women, who will hear that and then take up the white man's burden like Rudyard Kipling once wrote and like really charge into situations without full context, without Mm -hmm. a full understanding of the need and importance of partnering with folks, Mm -hmm. that you're not the first person who thought that this was a problem, that there are people who have been doing this work, mostly black women, to be honest, who've been doing this work for a long, long time Mm -hmm. and that you need to learn from them Mm -hmm. and see how you can contribute and don't expect to be able to do it as well as they are doing the same thing that they're doing, that we all have a role and a part to play. But what often happens is I I fear that leveraging your privilege is something that hits ears in a way that like empowers people, but then they go into it Mm ham-handedly and they just actually end up doing more hurt Mm. than good. I think leveraging your privilege is a part of or rather, a part of leveraging your privilege is doing the work before the work, mm-hmm. which is learning right. from educating people, yourself educating from, yourself mm-hmm. in a yeah. humble way. Mm-hmm. You know, like if I want to learn how to do anything, I'm not going to run into something that I'm unfamiliar with gung-ho as if I'm in charge. And I think it's very, very difficult in American society. And really globally, we're seeing it now. We're seeing how so many different um, societies are like, holding each other together at the seams of themselves and part of that is this fear of like white authority losing its place and there's a sense of like if we're not in charge then what's the point of it all like we're mm-hmm. going to go into chaos and i think there has to be a more humble approach to co-laboring there has mm-hmm. to be a more humble approach mm-hmm. to, to leveraging your privilege where you're like oh man i have to see how i can contribute to this Without being the star of the show. Right. Because it's easy and it feels great to say like, oh, I did this. Mm. You know, you think about all the kids who are, you know, writing their college essays and, you know, almost going to say they cured cancer on their college essays (laughs) to getting like Yale or something. But you got to be willing to be the servant leader. Mm -hmm. And if you're not doing that, then you are the problem as well. Because these problems aren't just one side of it where it's like, oh, look at the poor people messing things up. It's like, no. Who decided to make poverty this awful? Mm-hmm. Who was who withholding funds? Who was making these decisions on the macro level? Yes, there's personal responsibility, but your character is revealed by the environment you're in. Right. And you can allow for a certain situation to just like grow and be cultured mm-hmm. to allow people to make choices that they wouldn't have to make if they were in a better environment. So you're complicit. If you're enjoying your circumstances, you have to consider that there's something that this enjoyment is built on and is typically built on oppression. I think one of the most important things I've learned um, since I've lived in, in New York City over the past decade is that when it like the savior complex is so real so um, real and yeah. i have to check check it in myself often right, but right. I, I think just being told like it's Brittany, it is so important to just ask the people that you 
apparently want to serve now or help right. now or right. save now um ask what they need first come on like you know you <laughs> you can't assume what they need <laughs> right right and you can't just go like you said just like run forward thinking come that on. you're gonna save their life without actually coming alongside them and saying like hey how can i help you exactly um and like teach me and yeah. show me because yeah. people gotta people gotta know you in, in order they can trust you because you, you think you're the first like nice smile that's come up saying like i want to save you Mm -hmm. you're not but most of this has been grounded in exploitation and i think it's it's tragic that we have such a distrust for for one another but at the same time why wouldn't we you know if if, if there's been so many examples of exploitation of just brutal oppression brutal taking advantage of other people and i'm not and you don't have to go that far back you're talking about it even in the present day where there's so many um, organizations and churches and, and just people who, as long as they're able to objectify someone, they're fine doing service. But if they can't objectify, if they can't take a picture with all those Haitian kids or, you know, someone smiling like while they're getting water for the first time, like there's something just like sick about it to me. And it's like, no, we got to really understand how we can love each other and help one another while maintaining each other's dignity and humanity. Yeah. And, and that's something that seems to be so unappealing to people because they just love being the star of the show. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yep. Yeah. It pays to be humble, I think. It really does. Yeah. And you don't have to tell nobody you're humble. That's mm-hmm. like the beauty of humility, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if you, once you say you're humble, you've ruined it. Right. <laughs> just, just, Just do the work. Stay yeah. low and keep firing, right. you know? Yeah. Great. Yeah, man. Well, uh, I really hope that you guys enjoyed listening to Corey's story and feel as just inspired by his hopefulness and resilience and just the beauty of, of his spirit as we do. Yeah, man. Uh, it's uh, just hearing Corey talk about his hopes and dreams and like what family means to him. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, I hope that um, this episode gets to someone who's who grew up or is growing up in the same way that Corey did and, and lets them know that, you know, you have more options than you think. That the world is still really, really big. And so you can dream even bigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something beautiful about that and just I, I think that's what um makes the world a beautiful place is when you're able to live your life joyfully, regardless of where you started. Cause it's really about where you're at and where you finish it. So finish strong. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. We'll catch you next time on Cross Streets. Peace.